This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I want to go to Genesis chapter 2. And uh, we'll begin reading from verse 15 and following. So Genesis 2:15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And then just chapter 3, 1, verse verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Adam called his wife's name Eve, or life giver because she was the mother of all living. Now, we have been doing a series on Moses, but uh, we'll take a break on that. Today is Mother's Day, so I want to share with you, uh, well, I suppose about women in general, but a mother in particular, Eve, the mother of us all. Now, as women, you are, are a marvelous creation of God. And he has endowed you all with incredible, unique abilities, both spiritually and physically and emotionally, intellectually. And God made you as a woman in shape and in form that is highly attractive to man. And God has made you full of grace and goodness and strength and charm. And you have a tremendous ability to be intuitive and have a sense of things, much more than men. Women can pick up on things quicker than men can, instinctively, intuitively. Women have made an incredible contribution to the kingdom of God for thousands of years. In fact, the church would be greatly depleted if it was not for the fact that the majority of the church of Christ today are women. Therefore, it is not surprising that the Bible has much to say about women and womanhood and motherhood. 
And so in spite of all the rantings and ravens of strident feminists and secular authors and speakers that say that Christianity wants to set womankind back to the dark ages, but actually the Bible upholds woman. Uh, you know, when you think of the Bible as written uh, in, in the midst of paganism, and it was only Judaism and Christianity that rose women up out of that and gave them a special place and honored them. And so even today, it's Christianity that honors and upholds womanhood. And that goes against the grain of this world's thinking. <clears throat> women today are basically sexualized and exploited and made to feel that marriage and motherhood and raising children and true femininity and inner beauty and modesty, that that's all putting women down. Actually, it's raising women up. God never puts women down. He always raises them up. And so the talk today is that women should be freed from the shackles of Christianity and, and, and man-made religion. Well... I think that you agree, if you read through your Bible, you'll see that many, many women did great exploits <coughs> and changed history. You think of Esther, that wonderful, beautiful Jewess uh, in the land of Shushan, and how that she was the one who, through her bravery and her courage and her, uh, her charm, she was able to save her nation from annihilation. It was wonderful. You think of Sarah, who's the mother of nations. You think of Deborah, Deborah the great judge who led armies into great victory, who was extremely wise. When you think of somebody being a judge, we think today of somebody with a big wig on and a gavel in her hand and a black robe. But a judge then was somebody full of wisdom and knowledge who was able to sort out problems and able to, to get you know, heal divisions between people. That's the type of woman she was, and she was a great warrior. Think of old Anna the prophetess, who even in her 80s, who night and day uh, prayed and interceded and longed to see the Messiah, and God answered her prayer. And you think of the beautiful, virtuous, industrious woman of Proverbs 31, which we haven't time to read today, but you think of that wonderful picture of someone who was godly and good and wise and excellent in all her ways. You think of the, the Marys of the New Testament, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene. Think of those beautiful Marys. You think of Ruth the Moabite who became part of the very heritage and the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the smart, savvy Abigail who, because of her wisdom, he was married to a brute of a husband. He really was. And David wanted to kill him and took 400 men to slay him. And Abigail went out and met David and pleaded with him and, and showed him that this would be wrong if he did this. It would be a stain on his character. And he didn't do it. Abigail was a wise, wise woman. But this morning we just want to focus a little bit on Eve, the mother of us all. God made man from the dust of the earth, the Bible said. We read it. And he breathed into him the very breath of life, and man became a living soul. And he placed Adam in that beautiful Edenic paradise. 
Uh, we can only imagine what that must have been. Uh, must have been absolutely beautiful. And at that point, Adam really was the pinnacle of God's creation. That was the best God had made up to that point, but he wasn't finished yet. In fact, he was going to crown his creation because he was going to create woman. And whenever God saw Adam and had created all of the animals and Adam named them all and there was no helper, there was nobody comparable to him and he saw that he was lonely and the Bible says because of that God made a woman. Old John Milton in the 17th century, he says, loneliness was the first thing God saw and declared it not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And so right from the very beginning of creation, God saw that, that a man needed, needed a good companion, a helper, an encourager. And so God put Adam to sleep and removed from him a rib. And from that, he fashioned and he built this incredible creature that Adam called woman and named her as Eve. Do you realize that this is the only creature that God made out of living tissue? That Adam and all the animals he made from the dust of the earth? But when it came to Eve, he made her out of living tissue and he fashioned her intricately and incredibly well. And God personally did that. He could have spoken her into existence. He could have made her from the dust of the earth, but he chose to make her out of living tissue. I like what one writer said. He says, he made Adam from a handful of dust, but he made Eve from a handful of man. Old Matthew Henry, and we often say this at, at weddings, old Matthew Henry says, if man was the head, she was the crown. A crown to her husband and the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman dust doubly refined, one removed further from the earth. He further states, the woman was made out of the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, and not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, and under his arm to be protected by him, and close to his heart to be loved by him. We can only imagine the beauty of Eve because she now is the pinnacle of God's creation. She now is the crown of all God's creation. Her beauty must have been all-surpassing, flawless, in form, in shape, in color, in hair and eyes and everything about her. Must have been absolutely and beautiful. No cosmetics needed. No digital enhancement necessary. No photoshopping called for. No airbrushing. And as soon as Adam saw her, he was completely and utterly smitten. And it was truly love at first sight. When I said no cosmetics needed, you know, there's always been an argument in the church about women and cosmetics and about wearing makeup. 
One preacher said, you know, when people say it's a sin for a woman to wear makeup, one preacher said, for some women it's a sin that they didn't wear makeup. (laughs) 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 But isn't it interesting? Even though we said we could only imagine her beauty, but the Bible never describes it. We can only imagine, we can only suppose. But the Bible actually, in fact, when you read the stories of women in the Bible, rarely does the Bible say about their beauty. There's one or two occasions when it does, but rarely. Because God is more interested in the inner beauty of a woman than the outer beauty. The world is the opposite way around, isn't it? Now, not that a woman should think that there's any merit in being dowdy or unkempt or not looking your best, of course, you should always attempt to do that. But as believers, we should prioritize our <coughs> inner life rather than our outer life. That's always got to be the first priority as believers. Women today are under tremendous pressure, particularly young women, tremendous pressure to conform to the stereotypes in the media and on society. And we believers need to watch that we do not fall into that trap of trending. Everything's trending today. So we need to be careful that we don't become slaves to the latest trend or fashion. Because even though we want to look well and dress well and appear well, but yet not at the expense of the inner life. The inner life has got to be the thing that shines through. And so we must, even as women and as men, be modest in our appearance. Be modest in our appearance. Uh, Particularly for the sake of men, because men are attracted by the eye gate. That's the way God made us. And so therefore be modest in our attire, especially as believers. So Eve was the perfect companion for Adam. Spiritually, intellectually, she was on a par with him. She was lacking nothing. She was behinding nothing in comparison to Adam. Both were to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, the Bible says. Both of them. And so she was in no sense whatsoever inferior to Adam. He was in no sense superior to her. And sometimes we don't understand that, particularly as men and Christian men. Sometimes have the notion that somehow that men are superior to women, they are inferior to us. The Bible never ever says that. But God made a clear distinction between the roles of a man and a woman without her losing anything intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, or anything else but different roles. She would never ever be inferior to man, but she would be subordinate to man. And there's a difference. And sometimes men in the church doesn't know the difference and doesn't see the difference. 
This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9, Man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was the man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Adam was the head, Eve was the helper. That does not in any way make her inferior, just subordinate. How does that work? Well, consider this for a moment. The Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God, co-equal with one another. And yet when Christ was on earth, even though he was co-equal with God, and even though it says in Philippians that he thought his, not that his equality with God was something to be held on to, but became a man for our sakes. That while he was on earth, he was completely and utterly subordinate to the Father. He didn't do anything, he didn't say anything, except it was what the Father was saying or was wanting to do. I always do that which pleases the Father. He subordinated himself to the Father. The Holy Spirit, what did he do? What was his job? What was his role? To magnify Christ, to lift up the Lord Jesus. That's still a big part of his ministry even today. And so the Bible says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he's not lacking or behind or in fear in any way to the Father, yet he submitted himself and became subordinate to the Father. Are you beginning to get the picture here? So there's always this battle and argument to do with submission, and I haven't time to go into all of that today. But oftentimes men use that, particularly Christian men, they use that as something to hammer a woman over the head. Well, I'm the man, you got to obey me. No matter what. Well, the Bible never tells us to do that. In fact, at one point, Paul says we're to submit one to the other. But there is a difference in the roles. Paul further clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 11, 3. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. See, this in no way lessens or diminishes a woman in spirituality or in intellect or in any other way. But it does mean that God has got an ordained, divine, appointed role as the helper of man who is comparable to man, who is made from man, not from the dust of the earth, but from man himself. How many know today, and I need to hear an amen for this, because you missed several opportunities to say amen. <laughs> How many men know today that men function a whole lot better with the wisdom and the grace and the love and the giftedness of a good godly woman. Amen. And I can say amen to that too. Good job you said amen. You want to get any of those chocolates today? <laughs> and so yes, there's roles. There's divinely appointed roles. 
And if it's worked right, it'll be fine. It'll be God's way. But the world doesn't believe that. The world today wants all women to be strident feminists, to overrule all men. Now we've got the movies, you've got the Marvel movies of the superheroes, now the latest one is a woman. Superhero. Now you're going to have an LGBT superhero soon too. Five of the Marvel producers, don't you know, is coming down the pipe. And so we need to be careful. Let's look at Eve's temptation here um, because of the restrictions of time. We'll not go into everything, but this was a truly defining moment in the life of Adam and Eve and a truly defining moment for the whole world. This changed everything, and we have been living with the terrible consequences of this ever since. You know, if you read chapter 2, it ends with a beautiful picture of man and woman in the lovely garden, totally at peace with their God, enjoying life, everything beautifully. They were fulfilled. They loved one another. There was nothing between them. It was just a wonderful, beautiful, idyllic picture. But as soon as you go into chapter 3, it all changes because that's when the devil comes on the scene. And when he comes on the scene, then everything changes for the worse. Everything goes downhill from that point on. You know, there's lots of people today that says, well, if God's really God, and if God's good, and if God's this, and if God's that, why is there this trouble? Why is there that problem? Why are there diseases? Why there's wickedness? Why there's murder? Why there's all the way, blah, blah, blah. So you need to say to him, well, if you believe there's a God and you're saying, if there's a God, why is this happening? Well, do you not believe there's a devil then? Because none of this happened before the devil came on the scene. And when you go to the end of the book in Revelation, when he's done away with, then there's perfect peace. No more tears, no more crying, no more sadness, no more disease, none of that. So let's look at chapter 3 just for a moment. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, technically, technically, that's true. Because they couldn't eat of every tree. There was one tree they couldn't eat of. But to see how negatively he puts that? Because actually, in chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but there's one you can't eat. See how positive that is? And so the devil comes on the scene, and he immediately changes the picture. He immediately wants to get them to doubt God and get them to feel that God's withholding from them, that God's terribly restricting them. Actually, there was only one prohibition, just one. 99.9% was total and utter freedom. Just one little thing not to do. How 
has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, a couple of things you have to understand. God showed Adam, and we read it there in verse 16 of chapter 2. God showed Adam and told Adam what he couldn't do and what he could do. And he was very, very clear about it. There's nothing vague or nebulous about that command. You can have everything except one little thing. Do not do this. Just one, uh uh-uh, don't touch that or don't eat that. But that was before he created Eve. He was the one who got the command. He was the one who was given the order. He was the head. He was the one who was supposed to take care of business. But notice how the devil in the form of the serpent comes to Eve and Adam's not around. And he tricks her. And she fell for it. And she says, well, we can't eat of every tree of the garden, but God said there's one that you can't even touch it lest you die. Well, God didn't say, but touching it, he says, don't eat it. And he didn't say, lest you die. He said, you will surely die. So somewhere along the line, Adam wasn't giving Eve the full picture. He was careless in showing God's command. For whatever reason, we don't know, but he didn't emphasize it clearly enough. And that's why the devil waited till he wasn't around to got Eve on his own, on her own because she would be easier dealt with. She wasn't the one who got the command in the first place. She was getting it second hand, and it looks as if not very good second hand either. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. <laughs> Can I paraphrase a little? You shall not surely die. Sure, you're immortal. Didn't God make you to live forever? You'll not die. Huh. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Ah, you see, that's why God doesn't want you to eat that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be as smart as him. He doesn't want you to be as knowledgeable as he is. God is withholding from you. And that's the lie of the devil ever since. That this business of God, that we're smart, we're savvy, we have knowledge. Science today says we don't need God. We don't need God. We have figured everything out. And what we haven't figured out, we will just give us some time. We'll figure it out. You don't need God. Talk about the God of the gaps. You see, you Christians, when there's, a, when there's a part of it, nature, science, you don't understand, you just include God in that bit. Well, God did that. But we're smarter than that, you see, because we know how it worked. It wasn't God. It was, it was, it was nature. It was evolution. 
For God knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be opened, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they knew good, but they're certainly going to know evil. Didn't really realize how much evil they were going to know, but they were going to know it from here on out. And actually, they became more like the devil than God, didn't they? So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that appealed to her flesh, you see, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Suddenly, for the first time, they were exposed to their own nakedness. <coughs> Why that didn't bother them before, we don't exactly know. Maybe, maybe the glory of God covered them. But from that moment when they disobeyed and they fell in sin, from that moment, they became acutely aware of their nakedness. Their innocence was gone. Little babies, little toddlers, little infants sometimes can run about in their birthday suit at home, not a thought about it. But as they get up a little bit, they instinctively start to cover themselves. It's inbuilt. And that was what they did. They started to cover themselves. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Never had to do that before. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? As if he didn't know. How can you hide from an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, from a God who is omnipresent, who is everywhere present? How can you hide from a God like that? And yet that's what sin does. Sin wants us to hide from God and hide our sin from God. But God sees it. You can't hide from God. You can't hide your sin from God. He sees everything. He knows everything. But that's what sin does. Sin wants to cover up. Lord God called Adam and says, Where are you? Where are you before me? Where are you now? And standing before me. And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The first recorded words of fallen man was, I was afraid. Fear that he had never known before. Guilt that he had never known before. Shame that he had never known before came in because of sin. I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? 
And then it all kicks off. Here's the start of it all, isn't it? Here's the blame game coming up, isn't it? And we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? And the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's my wife's fault. It's her fault. She did it. That sound familiar? Hmm? It all started back then, didn't it? Because of sin. The woman you gave to be with me, so he's blaming the woman, but he's blaming God. The woman you gave to me. I, I didn't ask for a wife. I woke up one morning, there she was. Did I ever pray, put in a prayer request that I was lonely and needed somebody as a companion? Don't think so. I just woke up and there she was. So it was your fault. I didn't ask for her, but you give her to me. See how we blame God and we blame each other? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, Lord, you know me, I'm just a silly woman. I'm just a silly wee woman. And the serpent came along and he was so enticing and so tempting. And I looked at the fruit and it was good and it looked good and smelled good and boy, it tasted good. And I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I just fell for that. And in a way, she was the one who was deceived. She was. Bible makes that clear. But God just didn't let her off scot-free. Adam's going to take the bigger blame because he was the one who was over the head and being responsible and who didn't tell his wife what she needed to know in the proper way. And so Eve did get deceived. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Guess who he's talking to here? Not just that serpent, but the devil who energized the serpent. And he's talking about her seed that would come, who would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though the devil bruises heel, he would bruise his head. He would break his authority. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Ah, now, you see, some say now, we're in the New Testament, and some say now, you see, that whole business of the husband being the head of the wife, you see, that was because of the fall. See, that's way back in Genesis because of the fall. But under grace, it doesn't really matter anymore. No, it does. Paul reiterates it in grace and under grace. It's always part of God's plan. But now it's going to be harder. It's going to be more difficult. Now it's going to cause all kinds of tensions. And there's all kinds of tensions between husbands and wives, isn't there? <laughs> He's all got perfect marriages, I see. Or else you're all scared to put up your hands. <laughs> Uh, say on these thieves solicitors. Is that what you're thinking? Okay. Uh. 
Then he said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And we have been fighting a battle against the elements and against the earth ever since, haven't we? Continually fighting the battle, the weeds and the thorns and the briars. Ah, I don't fight it very much, I have to admit. <laughs> but that's the curse upon the earth. But the like of David Henderson there, where is David? There he is there. The like of David Henderson there, he's turned that curse into a blessing. He's making a livelihood out of it. <laughs> He doesn't mind that part of the curse. That's giving them work every day. <laughs> but you see, Adam, because he was the federal head of all humanity, he took the bigger blame. He had the higher responsibility. Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. Adam, knowing what he did, knowing that fully, went ahead consciously, deliberately chose to eat that fruit in disobedience to God's word that he knew, that he was commanded. So he takes the lion's share of the blame for sure. And also for Adam, sorry, and Adam called his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living. And also for Adam and his wife, Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them so innocent animals had to be killed and their blood had to be shed before they could make those tunics of skin. And all of this is a type of Christ who was to come, his innocent blood given for our guilty lives. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east gate of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which he turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And the ramifications for that has been great for all mankind. And that's why Paul further says in Romans 5.19, For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam's sin condemned us all. Now we have enough of our own sins to condemn us. But because Adam was the federal head of humanity, when he fell, we all fell in him. We all sinned in him. We're all condemned in him. And that's a good thing, by the way. It's a good thing that one man's disobedience made many sinners because the second half of that verse says, but by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Christ is the federal head of the new creation. And so <clears throat> our sins have been forgiven in him. 
We are free in him. We're not condemned in him. He's the head of the new creation. And so, having been barred from Eden, things are about to get very different from here on out. And then in the process of time, Eve, as a child, Cain, her firstborn. What a proud moment that must have been to see that little bundle of life in her arms that she gave life to, the mother of all living. And then a second child came, Abel. In Genesis 5, it tells us there was more. How many, we're not sure, but there was more. And as he lived to his 930 or something like that, there's probably a lot more. But, but, when they grew up, God commanded an offering to be brought to him. And both of them brought their offering. And God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. We'll not go into the reasons for that this morning. But Cain got mad and envious and jealous and angry. You don't have to turn many pages of the Bible before you see jealousy and rage and anger and murder. And he killed his brother. Killed him. Could you imagine how Eve must have felt? That her firstborn has been murdered by her secondborn? Can you imagine what she must have felt when she had to bury him? And Cain, maybe standing at the graveside, he murdered him? Can you imagine the pain in her heart, the anguish, the disappointment, the fear, maybe the guilt of saying, if I hadn't ate that fruit, if I hadn't been deceived, allowed myself to be deceived by the evil one. So here's the mother of all living, and her heart is broken, the pain, the anguish. Not only that, Cain had to go. He had to leave home. He had to go to the land of Nod. He had to go away. So now she's bereft of her two sons. One's on the ground, one's gone. And if the story ended there, it would be a very sad story indeed. But it doesn't end there. Because another son came, Seth. And Seth became the joy of her life. Seth was godly. Seth was godly. Seth's heart was after God and the things of God. And that must have pleased her immensely. After the pain and the anguish that she's gone through, suddenly this boy's growing up and he loves God. And he had a son, Enosh, who called upon God. And if you follow and trace Seth's lines through, you'll see a godly line. We love our grandchildren, don't we? We tend to spoil our grandkids, don't we? 
but nothing pleases grandparents as much to see their grandkids following after God. If you're a believing mother and father to see your grandkids following after God, it pleases your heart. It really, really does. If I heard a see Enosh calling upon God and chasing after God, that must have pleased your heart. Not only her son, but her son's son. Another generation. And so, mothers today, what an honor, what a responsibility, what a blessing God has given you and has made you as a godly mother, doing your best for your children. We know when they grow up to a certain stage, they've got to make up their own mind. We can't save them. Only they can call upon God for that. But we pray for that. And we put something into their lives and we teach them the things of God. That's our responsibility. That's our privilege. That's our honor to do that. And when you do that, and you see fruit from that, it's such a blessing, isn't it? So God has given you a tremendous giftedness as mothers and as women not only to your family but to the church in fact to the whole world I know there's one woman in parliament at the moment and I think a lot of people would rather she wasn't there right now but there's another story we're not going to but God has given you a great gift and ability to do what you're called to do is to be great mothers in the kingdom of God, to be mothers in Israel, as the Bible says. Amen? <coughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we honor those who are mothers here today. Thank you for every one of them, for all the sacrifices they have made, for the cost, Lord, that they paid, for everything they have done for their children. Lord, we give you thanks for that. Thank you for their giftedness. Thank you, Lord, for their abilities that you have put within each of them. And Lord, as they have used that for your glory and to honor you with, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.